Hello, and welcome to the second in our series of podcasts. I'm Amy Howe from Howe & Russell. In Tom's first podcast, he covered the five criteria that play most prominently into the Supreme Court's decision to grant or deny cert. And just to recap those, they are, you know, first, that the case presents a pure question of federal law. Second, that the courts of appeals are divided on the issue so that if the case had been brought in another circuit, that court would have decided this exact same case differently. Three, that the issue is ready to, ready to be decided by the Supreme Court now and need not percolate further in the lower courts. Four, that the issue is clearly presented by this case. And five, that the Court of Appeals simply got the issue wrong. We have a running joke in our office, in fact, that when we draft cert petitions, we actually use the same three headings, which encapsulate all five of these criteria as a template, and then just go ahead and fill in the argument specific to that case. While that's not actually true, it does give you an idea of the extent to which you need to be thinking about these factors, not only as you're drafting your cert petition, but also even before you start drafting and are deciding whether to file a cert petition at all, and if so, how to frame the question presented. Using the questions presented from some petitions that have been filed recently, I'm going to talk about cert criteria from the angle of what not to do with your question presented. The three cases that I'm going to use as examples, if you're following along on the computer, you can actually uh, click on the links to see these questions, are, were all filed within the space of approximately a month, which suggests that despite the court's best efforts to make its cert criteria clear, and what we who practice regularly before the court regard as the common knowledge that you need a circuit split to get your case granted, lawyers are still filing a fair number of paid cert petitions that have effectively no chance of getting granted. Let's return to the first criterion that Tom mentioned, that it be a pure question of federal law. There are two parts to this question, of course. The first is that it's a question of federal law. And so if you're following along on your computer, let's turn to our first example. This question, there are actually five questions presented to this case. We're going to look at the first one and the third one in particular. The first question is, what is the appropriate period of limitations in Kentucky for an insured's contractual claim against his or her own insurance company for underinsured motorists uh, here and after UIM benefits? And second, if an insurance company can permissibly contractually limit the period of limitations by inserting language in the policy, what period of limitations for UIM claims is reasonable under Kentucky law? And so here in, in these two questions presented, the emphasis is on Kentucky law. It's really difficult to imagine a clearer question of state law, which is precisely what the court is not going to grant cert to review. And just as an aside, you'll notice that this, I mentioned that this case actually has five questions presented, which is two or three too many. Most Supreme Court pra practitioners will recommend that you whittle your questions presented down to two or at most three of your strongest questions if for no other reason than that there simply isn't room to do justice to multiple questions presented, and you'll be taking away space from your strongest questions. The second part of Tom's criteria, first criterion that it be a question of federal law is that it be a question of law. If all that you're doing in your, in your question presented and in your cert petition is alleging that the lower courts got the facts wrong, the Supreme Court simply isn't going to be interested. And in fact, to make this perfectly clear, back in 1995, it amended its Rule 10A to add a sentence at the end so that that rule now reads, a petition for a writ of certiorari is rarely granted 
when the asserted error consists of erroneous factual findings or the misapplication of a properly stated rule of law. And so if you're following along on your computer, the, the second link, the second question presented that we're going to look at here um, is whether the appeals court erred in upholding the trial court's denial of safety valve consideration upon the findings made. As, again, as an aside, this question presented is actually fairly impenetrable. It's hard to know until you get into, further into the cert petition exactly what this case is about. You certainly don't want your question presented to be too long, but you usually need at least a little bit of context in, in most cases. In this particular question presented, it's hard to tell whether the allegation is that the court got the facts wrong or it misapplied the facts to the law, but either way, it's exactly the kind of question presented that the court was trying to discourage in the amendment to Rule 10A. Third, and finally, the, the third criterion we're going to talk about today is the criterion that the issue is ready for this court to decide now, that the issue has percolated sufficiently in the lower courts and that those courts have fleshed out the different issues involved and considered possible rationales for their conclusions. What you don't want to do is exactly what this third question presented does in the very first line, which is to give the court the idea that this is a case of first impression. And so it's the third example of a question presented. This case presents an issue of first impression in which the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit dot, 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 reversed the jury verdict in favor of petitioner on this, in this hybrid Section 301 breach of duty of fair representation case dot, dot, dot. To be sure, the Supreme Court certainly does take cases that are essentially issues of first impression, but even in those cases which are generally of monumental importance or perhaps involve a federal statute being, being invalidated, you're not going to want to couch the issue as one of first impression. You'd be much better off describing the case in terms of, for example, a conflict of Supreme Court precedent and describing the importance rather than giving the, the clerk who's writing the memo the excuse in the very first line of your question presented that this is an issue that hasn't percolated and, and that the court doesn't need to consider right now. So that wraps up this second podcast. I hope that these examples have been useful to you, if only as a cautionary tale. Thanks for joining us.